0: A lot of people in this building yesterday morning, kind of getting everything all decorated uh, for this Christmas season. This is the time when people start thinking about Christmas. Maybe you did some things at your house to prepare for that. There is no holiday in the United States that seems to require as much planning and preparation as Christmas, right? So, so I mean, we think of all of. I mean, there's there's travel planning and preparation that needs to happen. There's meal planning and preparation, decoration planning and preparation, party planning and preparation, gift planning and preparation. There's just lots of planning and preparation leading up to this time called Christmas. And one thing that I think easily gets missed as we're doing all of this other planning and preparation is any kind of heart preparation that needs to happen within us. It's easy to miss out on the importance of that. And so what we're going to do for the next four Sundays leading up to this time is we're going to focus on preparing our hearts for the celebration of the coming of Jesus. Like I said, uh, many churches call this time of the year, a season called Advent, which just means coming. And it's a time where we're awaiting in anticipation the coming of the Messiah. Seems kind of fitting. We just got done uh, going through Mark 13, talking about the second coming of Jesus. And now, what we're going to do, we're taking a break from Mark right now, and then in January, we're going to do kind of a four- to five-week series on prayer. Um, And then we're going to get back into Mark's gospel and finish that up. But we're going to, for these next four weeks... Be in, like we did last year, last year we did this as well, going to an Old Testament book. The Old Testament was written before Jesus came and there was this sense of anticipation all throughout the Old Testament of this Messiah who would come. And so we're going to go back to an Old Testament book and one of the books in the section known as the Minor Prophets. They were called Minor not because they were not important, but because they were shorter. And so uh, there's these short books that a lot of times we almost totally neglect in the church. You might neglect it personally as you spend time reading the Bible on your own. You look at what pastors are preaching in, in churches. You look at what kids are learning in Sunday school. A lot of times the minor prophets get missed. And so we're going to spend four weeks in a pretty unique minor prophet, and it is the book of Habakkuk. And so don't be ashamed if you've got a... Look at your table of contents to try and find it. It's short. It's three chapters. We're going to go through it in four weeks. And I am calling this series, Worship and Wait. Here's, here's kind of the big idea for the series. Here's where I hope to be going. Here's where we're headed. It is really easy to get impatient when God seems to be unresponsive to our prayers. Or maybe God answers, but he answers in ways that we don't like. But as we wait on the Lord, He will reveal to us more of who He is and how He works, so that we will choose to trust and worship Him. That's what I want to see happen as we go through this book. We're going to start today with the first 11 verses. There's going to be two conversations in Habakkuk recorded between Habakkuk and God. Um, And we're going to go over the first one today, which shows up in the first 11 verses of the book of Habakkuk. And I think that as we go through this, you are going to be surprised. I have been, and I hope you'll be surprised too. As we go through this book, you're going to be surprised maybe at how much we can relate to this man who lived about 2,600 years ago. And so we are going to be in Habakkuk 1, 1 through 11. The big idea for today is this. When we cry out to God in prayer, because sin seems to be winning and God seems to be absent, we can be assured that He is doing something. If you have had a season in your life, or maybe it's now, or maybe it's been like your whole life, where you feel like you pray a lot, but God isn't doing anything. Or you're looking around, and you're seeing sin and evil seeming to win in the world, and you're like, when's God going to show up and do something about this? You're going to be able to relate to Habakkuk. So, if you would... Open up to Habakkuk chapter 1. We're going to read God's Word first, and then I'm going to just walk through it with you. So if you're able to, please stand as we read God's Word. Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear Or cry to you, violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted." And we hear God's answer. He says this, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, They gather captives like sand, and at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. You can be seated. you see in your bulletin uh, a few points. We're going to hit the first one really, really quickly, Introduction to Habakkuk, and then actually the next two pretty quickly as well, and we're going to spend a decent amount of time on that last one about God's work in our days, because I want you to see how closely the book of Habakkuk can relate to what's going on in our world and in our lives today. Habakkuk 1.1 simply says this, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Okay. So this is just the introduction to the book. It's a book that we call Habakkuk uh, because it was a prophet named Habakkuk that was writing this book. We actually know very little about this prophet. If you look at where it falls in your Bible, again, it's in the Old Testament. This was written before Jesus came to earth. Uh, Habakkuk was most likely written about the same time. If you're looking for other people who were kind of living at the same time, Jeremiah is another book about the same time, Zephaniah and Nahum, and maybe Joel. Not sure on the date of of Joel. So those are people that were writing, uh, were prophets at the same time as Habakkuk. Um, And the thing that's unique about this book, as we go through it, you'll notice that a lot of times you read through the prophets, and the prophets are speaking directly to Israel or Judah. But this prophet, this, this book Habakkuk, is A record of a prayer, basically, between Habakkuk talking to God and God speaking to Habakkuk. We see two conversations, and then the third chapter is really just kind of a psalm or a prayer, a response that Habakkuk writes. So it's a unique prophet in that way. We need to understand a little bit of what's happening at this time for us to really understand this passage. So just brief history lesson, okay? At this point... God's people, Israel and Judah, had been split into two kingdoms. That had happened long ago. This is happening around the year 600 B.C. So at the end of Josiah's reign, and and there's a lot of spiritual decline happening amongst God's people. Israel had already been taken away into captivity by this major power called Assyria. So a major world power at that point had been Assyria, they had taken Israel off into captivity, and now all that was left was the little spot known as Judah. And here Judah sits after Israel's already been taken away, and Judah is living right in the middle. Now the Assyrians have been losing power, and there are these new people rising to power in the world, and it's the Babylonians, or as it calls them in this passage, the Chaldeans. Okay? So the Babylonians are this rising world power. In 605, I think it was, B.C., the Babylonians would finally take out the Assyrians. So Assyrians are kind of obliterated, and the Babylonians are taking over. They would invade Judah three times over the next number of years. 605, I think, was one of the times. 597 and 586 B.C. Okay? So, Judah is situated between this rising world power of vicious people that are coming and just taking over peoples and lands everywhere known as Babylon or the Chaldeans and then right below them is Egypt another great world power still at that time and Judah is in a time of fear frustration confusion wondering god is 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 what happened to Israel going to happen to us I mean this is this is and, and they're not being totally faithful to God at this point in their history either. So that's kind of the, the the climate at the time uh, Habakkuk's being written. And so all that context to say, let's get to this prayer here in verses 2 to 4. Habakkuk is going to talk to God about this. He's probably echoing what a lot of people in Judah are thinking. He's concerned because he's talking about, mainly in verses 2 to 4, he's not talking about stuff, stuff going on in Babylon and Egypt he's talking about stuff going on right there in Judah around God's people and he's concerned with what he sees and so we get verses two through four verse two look at verse two again it says this "O Lord how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save what's Habakkuk feeling feeling like God isn't answering prayer God, how long do I have to wait for you to do something? I'm crying out to you, and it seems like you're doing nothing. Have you experienced unanswered prayer? That there are things that you have maybe even repeatedly for a long time cried out to God about? And you feel like, God, how long are you going to wait to do something about this? That's where Habakkuk's at. And we get to verse 3. He says this, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So we see a few things there. The first thing we see is iniquity. He says, why do you make me see iniquity? Right in front of him, amongst God's people, he's seeing iniquity or sin. Like just just ugly stuff. Like, God, I know that this does not honor and please you. This is not the way you want your people to live. It's a mess. I'm sick of looking at it. I don't even want to look at what people are doing anymore. And then he says, there's wrong. That's, uh, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? There's, there's wrong all around him. And, and the thing that's confusing for Habakkuk is this. Okay, I know, God, that you're just, that you're a holy God, and you don't just, like, look at sin and tolerate it. You're not a God who tolerates sin, but I'm looking around, and it kind of looks like that's what you're doing. There's wrong happening all over, and you're looking idly at it, God. That's his complaint. God, why don't you come and do something about all this mess? Right, that's his complaint, coming before God with it. He says there's destruction, and there's violence, there's strife, and there's contention. I mean, not only on on a national level, but he's probably looking at the same stuff that we see in our day. There's dads and daughters who don't get along. There's husbands and wives who who can't love each other. There's strife and contention everywhere I look. And he is upset. Verse 4 Verse 4, he's basically saying, hey, God, it seems like sin is winning. It seems like sin is winning. Look at verse 4. So the law, remember the law is God's good gift to his people, telling them this is how to live. He's like, it's worthless, God. It, the law is paralyzed. It's not doing anything. Nobody's obeying it anyway. You say this is how you want your people to live, but nobody's living that way. The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. Nobody's getting what's owed them. You're just like letting stuff go, God. The wicked surround the righteous. I mean, there's still some good people. There's still some righteous people. But they're not winning. The wicked are surrounding the righteous, he said. The few good guys that are left, they can't win. It's like the wicked people always win. What's the deal, God? Habakkuk is complaining. That's the kind of prayer it is. It's It's not just a... Kind of prayer that maybe we pray a lot. He's he's just complaining, flat out complaining before God. This stuff is a mess and you're not doing anything, God. When are you going to come and do something? And then we get to God's answer. God answers Habakkuk in in verses 5 through 11. Verse 5, it says this. Look among the nations and see, God says, wonder and be astounded. First thing he tells Habakkuk to do is listen. Look, you're focused right here, and all you see is sin and injustice. Look among the nations and see. Wonder. And when he looks, he's going to wonder and be astounded. But then listen to what God says. For I am doing a work in your days. He's directly answering Habakkuk's complaint. What was Habakkuk's complaint? God, you're looking idly at wrong. There's all sorts of wrong going on. You're not even doing anything, God. And God directly answers that complaint, and he says, For I am doing a work in your day. And the rest of the verse says this, I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. See, God's at work doing something that Habakkuk is not expecting. He said, If I told you what it is that I'm at work doing, you wouldn't even believe me. Because you, you, you see this problem and you think, here's what God ought to be doing about it. And you think you know the answer. He's saying, Habakkuk, you don't know. the. I am doing the work in your days. But if I tell you what it is, you're not even going to believe it. Because you're looking in the wrong place. You're expecting me to do something different than what I'm actually going to do. And he's actually going to tell him in verses 6 through 11 what that is. So in verse 6 he says this. For behold, I am raising. God says God says this. I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Huh? I'm raising up... Okay, hold on a second, God. I I told you that there's sin and injustice and, and, and wrong and destruction and violence happening all over. And I want you to do something about it. And your answer is, I am doing something about it. I'm raising up a bitter and hasty nation. Really? That... That's your answer, God. I mean, what's going through Habakkuk's head as God says this? Because look at, God goes on and explains a bit more. In verse 6, he tells them, These people seize dwellings that aren't their own. They come and take your house. It doesn't belong to them, but they come and live in it. Oh, that's the people that you're raising up, God? Verse 7 says they're dreaded and fearsome. Verses 8 and 9 talk about their great military might. Verses 10 and 11 says, they bow to no one else. They scoff at kings. They laugh at rulers and fortresses. They're guilty men whose own might is their God. This is the nation that God is raising up? Habakkuk has got to be thinking, and even us, we're reading this. We're not living in that time, but that, that description of what Babylon is like, what the Chaldeans are like, like that's the work you're doing, God? Really? I, 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 that's the problem. That's not the answer, God. And so Habakkuk is more than likely quite confused at this point. God's answer is, I am. I'm doing a work, and that work is raising up a strong nation filled with greedy, powerful, violent, guilty men. That's the work I'm doing right now. Huh. That was not the answer that Habakkuk was expecting. And so we're kind of on the edge of our seat, maybe like, I wonder how he's going to respond to that. And since this is a season of Advent and waiting, we're going to wait till next week. Unless, you can, uh, by the way, th- there's no there's no penalty for reading ahead in your Bible. Go ahead and do that. Uh, I want you to tune in for the rest of this sermon, but you get home, you you go at it, you open up Habakkuk, you finish it this week, you can finish it before you even eat lunch today. It's a short book. We're going to wait and look at it a little more deeply next week, Habakkuk's answer to God's response, because he's not just going to say, oh yeah, that makes sense, God, I guess I just didn't see that. That's not his answer. We're going to see his answer next week. But God responded to Habakkuk saying, I am doing a work in your days. And and here's where I want to go with the rest of this sermon. One thing I love about the Bible and one thing I love about our God is is the same God who Habakkuk was talking to and who was talking back to Habakkuk 2,600 years ago is the same God that we worship and serve. And that God does not change. And so, so, so we can trust a number of different things. That, that, that just as God was at work in Habakkuk's day when Habakkuk couldn't see it, he thought everything was just going to pot and God wasn't doing anything about it. That same God is at work in our day as well. And how is it that God is at work in our day? I want to look at a couple of things. I want to take us back to Habakkuk's complaint because I want to help us see how well we can relate to Habakkuk. Let's go back to Habakkuk's complaint in verses 2 to 4. In verse 2, he said, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? You ever felt like that? You ever felt like you've been crying out to God for help? You're wondering, like, can I even handle this anymore? And so you, you cry out to God for help, and it's like, nothing happens. How long Do I have to cry out to you for help? You've been praying about the same thing for such a long time. You're like, how long am I going to have to keep praying about this, God? It's like you're not doing anything, and you will not hear, he asks. We can relate to Habakkuk, can't we? Verse 3. In verse 3, he says, Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So we can, I mean, you turn on the news, you read something, like you start looking at what's going on around our world and whether it's violence taking place in Ferguson, Missouri, or, or things taking place with the terror of ISIS in the Middle East, and we look at our world, and we could, we could just quote verse 3 as our prayer to God, couldn't we? Why do you make us see iniquity? Why are you looking idly at wrong, God? destruction and violence are before us strife and contention are arising and so we see that stuff that we see in the news and then we realize hey we don't even have to look that far we don't have to watch the news to see all that stuff right what about the greed and materialism that that seemed to draw us in around this national holiday known as black friday right like what about that what, what about? What about the fact that you can hardly even let your kids watch TV because you don't know what kind of junk is going to show up in the advertisements during the shows that they're watching. You can hardly even watch it yourself, right? I mean, destruction and violence are always before us, God. This world's a mess, what about the fact that, that, that we see cruelty? We don't have to look to, to, to beheadings to see cruelty. We can look around uh, among young people and see the, the bullying that's running rampant in schools and say, how long do we have to look at this? Come and do something about this, God. Right? It's all around us. We don't even want to look at this stuff. It makes us sick. So we can relate to Habakkuk, can't we? Verse 4 we can say the law is being totally ignored. Nobody does stuff the way your word says anymore, God. see injustice all around. Sin is winning. We can relate to Habakkuk, can't we? So what do we learn then from Habakkuk? I think one thing we learn is bring that stuff to God. I mean, you can, you can get disgusted about it and frustrated about all the stuff that you see around. Talk to God about that. That's what Habakkuk was doing. He wasn't just complaining at the coffee shop with all the other dudes. He was, he was talking to God about this, saying, God, I don't get this. I don't get this world. I don't get why stuff is the way it is. I don't like this. I don't want to see it anymore. God, come and do something about it. Bring it to God. But what do we do with God's answer? God's answer is like, hey, I am doing something. So so, how do we see that today? In, in Habakkuk's day, the answer was God is doing something, and what he was doing was he was raising up this bitter and hasty nation. So we need to ask the question, what is God doing in our day? We have a God who's still at work, and so what is it that God is doing in our day? Two things. One, we can trust that God is at work. In our days, we can trust that God is at work. I think it could be in ways that maybe we're not expecting, just as it was for Habakkuk. But we can trust that in our days, God is at work. Now, I want us to think about this. Could it be that part of the reason that Habakkuk was missing out on what God was doing was that Habakkuk assumed that he deserved mercy and all the other people deserved judgment? Right? I think that was maybe part of the reason that Habakkuk would have been surprised to hear what God was doing, because his understanding was, well, God, you need to be, God at work looks like God showing us mercy and showing judgment to everybody else who's out there sinning, right? But what if, what if the sin of God's people that Habakkuk was seeing, and even the sin in his own heart was actually worse than he thought it was? What if that's true about us? What if, what if the sin around us, I mean, as bad as we think things are, what if the sin around us and the sin in us was actually worse than we think it is? I think that's the truth for Habakkuk. Habakkuk and the rest of God's people in this day were worse than they thought they were, and I think we're worse than we think we are too. And so we look at God's response in verses 5 to 11, and we say, Well, that seems very harsh. That seems almost cruel. That seems unthinkable, unbelievable. How could God do that? And then we realize that we're worse than we think we are. And God is a just God, and we deserve punishment. He's a just and a holy God. Yes, the world is messed up and deserving of judgment, and we are a part of the world, right? Yes, the world is messed up and deserving of judgment, but we're a part of that world. And so, is there any hope? Is there any hope? I mean, thankfully there is. That Habakkuk had a hope that he could only really look forward to, we have a hope that we can both look back on and look forward to. And the hope that we have in the midst of this world, filled with sin and stuff that we don't want to see, The hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the second thing. In our day, we remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember Habakkuk. He was questioning whether God was being just by not doing anything about sin. And here we live on this side of the cross. And it is in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we see God acting justly and doing something about sin. We look around the world today, and we see all of the violence and destruction and injustice. We wonder if God has an answer for it all, if God will do something. We're wondering, like Habakkuk was, God, are you just going to let this all happen? Are you just going to let it go, God? God's answer is no. I have done something, and I will do something. God is a holy God who cannot and will not tolerate sin. You know that, right? That God is a holy God and He will not tolerate sin. He's not idly looking at wrong. He's not, it's not that He doesn't care about it. He is a holy God and He is just. And His wrath will be poured out for all violence and destruction and sin that exists. God's wrath is poured out on that. There will be punishment and that's not good news. Because you and I are sinners And the sin is not just out there somewhere in that big bad world. The sin is right here in our big bad hearts. And so how then, the question has to be, Habakkuk would have this question, we would have this question, well, how then can God still be just? How can God punish sin? And since I'm a sinner, how can I be spared from God's punishment? How can I be spared from God's wrath that is much worse than the wrath of the Babylonians? I mean, this, this Babylonian force that was coming was nothing compared to the wrath of our holy and mighty God how can I be spared from that I want you to turn to Romans chapter 3 Romans chapter 3 going into the New Testament Romans chapter 3 starting in verse 23 it says this for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God so that's the problem it's not just a problem out there With those other people, it's a problem for all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Justified. So so somehow we are made right. We're declared righteous. That's what justified means. How does that come? By His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so that doesn't seem very just, does it? How, how could it be that a holy God can look at our sin and just say, that's okay, I'm not going to punish you. That's not just. When there is an offense as great as our offense is against God, God can't just look at that and say, I'm not going to punish that. I'm just going to let that one slide. If he did that, he would not be a just God. We don't want to worship a God who's not a just God. So God did something about it, and it says exactly what he did here In verse 25, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. There is an ugly, ugly sin problem, and it's out there, and it's in here. And God is not looking idly at it. God has done something about that sin problem. God sent His own Son to be a propitiation. That is, someone to stand in our place to bear God's wrath for our sin. That's what Jesus came to do, to bear the wrath of God so that God is not unjust. He didn't just let sin go. He's a God who deals justly with sin, and He did so by sending Jesus into the world. By sending his son into the world to be born of a virgin, to grow and to live a sinless life, and then to be put to death by cruel men on a cross. You think the Babylonians and what they did was offensive and cruel to people? It's nothing compared to what sinful men did to God himself in human flesh, Jesus, as they nailed him to a cross. He was truly innocent, but he bore the wrath of God for our sin in our place. God has an answer for sin. He is just, and He will punish sin. And we need to hear this, and you need to hear this message today. Because it says also there in Romans 3, how do you get that? How how does that come to us? How do we not receive God's punishment for our sin? And it's because, verse 25 Whom God put put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The only way that you escape the wrath of God for your sin, which is offensive most of all to Him, the only way that you escape God's just wrath for your sin is that you trust in Jesus And if you do not trust in Jesus, if you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Him, then the offense still sits on your own shoulders, and you will bear God's wrath for your sin, because He is a just God, and He will not tolerate sin forever. It says in 2 Peter 3, the reason He's tolerated it up to this point, in 2 Peter 3 it says, He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's being patient. You have not yet endured God's wrath, but I don't know when your time will be up, and you don't know when your time will be up, so it is vitally important that we recognize that we are sinners who have offended a holy and righteous and just God, and He must punish sin. And the only way to be spared from that punishment is to put your trust in Jesus and receive the free gift of redemption. So If you have not done that, you want to talk about that, I would love to talk to you about that. But if you have, if, if you have, then you need to rejoice in the truth that the price for your sin, as great as it was, has been paid in full. We are going to sing a closing song here in just a moment. It's an old hymn, and, and I love um, how a number of old hymns just, just remind us of the struggle that we live in. That 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 you might feel like you're in a season of life right now where you're like Habakkuk crying out to God and wondering, God, are you gonna show up and do something? We're gonna sing the words, When sorrows like sea billows roll. It's like you're getting overwhelmed. And you just don't know if you can even come up for breath anymore. And you're wondering how long, O oh Lord, till you come and do something. But then if you're somebody who's trusted in Jesus. We're going to get to verse 3, and I don't care if you can't sing very well. We ought to sing verse 3 at the top of our lungs because verse 3 tells us this truth. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Right? That, 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 that's where we're at. If we have put our trust in Christ and God has an answer, are you going to do something about sin? And his answer is, I have done something about sin. It's been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more because you have trusted in my son. And we respond by saying, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Right? I'm going to close with a, a, a reading just one verse or two verses of scripture and then praying a prayer that somebody else wrote. The truth is when we cry out to God because sin seems to be winning and God seems to be absent or inactive, we can trust that God has done something, that he is doing something, and he has yet to do something more. We can trust that God has, is, and will do something. And so as I was just, you know, processing all the stuff going on in our world and and putting this sermon together this week, I came across this this scripture passage and and a short little prayer written by another pastor as he's looking at everything. I'm going to close by reading that prayer, and then we'll close by singing a song together. So would you bow your heads as I pray, and we pray together, and the worship team gets ready to lead us in that song. God's Word says this in Isaiah chapter 60 of a day that is yet to come. Here's what it says. I will make peace your governor and well-being your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Dear Lord Jesus, we come to you today with cries of lament and sighs of longing. How long, O Lord, until you return and put an end to all violence whether it's in the streets of Ferguson or the villages of Iraq, how long before there's no more? There's no more warring nations or even divisive personalities. How long before there's no more sexual assaults or abuses of power? When will the dawn break on the day of no more arguments between friends, pettiness between spouses, and petulance in our churches? How long, O oh Lord? How long? We yearn for the day when peace will be our governor and well-being our ruler, when walls won't be built of bricks and mortar but of grace and salvation, when gates won't be locked to keep others out of our homes, but our gates will be open to welcome the nations into the new earth. How long until lambs and wolves live together? How long, O Lord? How long until the knowledge of Your glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea? Until that day... Jesus, help us to live by the gospel and not by the sword, by the way of your cross, not by the ways of mere men. You are the Prince of Peace, sovereign over angels and disciples, over kings and conflicts. Grant us grace so that we might sow seeds of grace today in light of that ultimate day of the harvest of peace. So very amen we pray in your strong and loving name. Amen.